What's really good, everybody? This is Nathan Alabach, and welcome to the podcast where we get into people's stories and go down a bunch of rabbit holes about what's really good in the world. Today's episode features Ella Dawson. Ella is the social media editor for TED Talks. She's also a blogger who writes about sex and ethics. And a few years ago, she went viral over a very personal article she had published about what it's like to live with herpes in effort to remove some of the mass stigma behind it in our public's eye. Her story was featured on Women's Health, BuzzFeed, MTV, HuffPost, and a bunch more places. She even did a TEDx talk on the topic and received a letter of solidarity from none other than Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Can you imagine? It's so crazy. Um, Unfortunately, once this blew up, she became a major target of online harassment, which was spearheaded by mostly trolls and members of the alt-right, which we touched on a bit throughout our conversation. We went all over the place here, starting by getting into internet culture, specifically within topics like 4chan, Gamergate, and feminism. Then we touched on the aftermath of the 2016 election and how to now navigate political correctness and social polarization. Then we got into what it's like for Ella working at TED and what it's like for brands in general today having to redefine their identity while so many people are demanding companies to make big social statements and have political opinions and all that madness. It's really weird. And we closed on the issue of privacy and how the internet is slowly dissolving it more and more by touching on this whole hashtag plain bay story that broke last week in which a woman live Instagrammed and tweeted two people on a plane and projected an entire narrative onto their conversations and actions in which the internet just ate it up like it was totally cute and normal, which had both of us feeling like that disapproving, conceited reaction meme. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway, um, I had a blast talking with Ella. She's so articulate with her ideas and candid with her stories, and I think the work she's doing is really inspiring. So I hope you all enjoy it. Now let's get into what's really good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is a real treat for me. And there's a million (laughs) places that we can go off the jump because we have a lot in common with working in social media, which is how we came to know each other via the Twitter. But um, just to give the tweets, the Twitter world, but just to give people um, some 101, some background on who you are and what you do, like what is your story and how did you come to be so online? Oh, man, I've always been quite online as uh, one of the one of the millennial generation. But uh, the the nutshell version of who I am is that I do I'm the social media editor over at TED Talks. So I spend my days trying to convince people to watch 15 minute videos about why the bees are dying and self-improvement, which is can be difficult in this environment where watching a 10 to 15 minute video is like a massive commitment. So that is my that is my day self. And 
besides that, I am also a sexuality critic. I write about sex and sex ed and sexual health and feminism and gender, and that can be an unpopular thing to do online. So I ha- I went viral at 22 after I wrote an essay about what it's like to live and date with genital herpes and became like an accidental cult figure for people who live with STDs, and that took, out- took over my life for a few years. And after that, I started writing more about feminism and having a voice online and the ethics of technology and social media, having run afoul of some very dark corners of the internet during my writing. So I am a, I'm a social media editor and a writer, and um, I spend a lot of time looking at the dark side of the internet and how, how it impacts people's lives, especially if they are marginalized in some kind of way. Yeah, that, I mean, that's all insane. Just first off, that's like I can't even <laughs> imagine going viral at that young of an age and just especially for something so stigmatizing in your shoes as someone who spends a lot of time online. So, I mean, what like just off the bat, like we don't have to spend too much time on this. Like we were talking a little bit before the interview, just how you've at nauseum at this point gone off about, you know, what it's been like living with herpes and trying to destigmatize it and all that. But what has it been like since that period of time? Like how many years ago was all that? So that kicked off um, when I was 22, 23. I guess that was uh, spring 2015. Um, so not that long ago, but it feels like ages ago. Cause I think it aged me quite a bit, but yeah, so I was a year out of college when I started to write and I wrote an essay for women's health that went viral overnight. I was expecting maybe a few thousand people to read it. It turned into hundreds of thousands of people. And a lot of people before I went public with having an STD told me, you know, this could impact your employment. This could impact the people you date, your family, are you prepared for that? And the question for me was never about shame. I was never worried about people judging me. I figured if if I'm not going to get hired for a job because I wrote about having herpes on the internet, that's not somewhere I would want to write anyway, mm. but uh, where I want to work anyway. But what I wasn't expecting was the fact that um, I like you're all you get the backlash you're least expecting. I find is like the one of the rules of the internet. Yeah. Uh, I was really prepared for like the conservative religious right to hate my guts, and what really wound up happening was that men's rights activists and what went on to become the alt-right, they were the people who really hated me and had a lot of fun at my expense. People like Milo Yiannopoulos, um, Paul Joseph Watson from InfoWars made me a really easy target because I played into this trope of look at this crazy feminist fighting for really crazy causes. Like look at these feminists trying to celebrate having genital herpes, that kind of nonsense. So it was definitely a crash course in how the internet is everything can change online in a second and no one is really all that safe from having their lives completely changed anyone can become a hero and a target in a matter of seconds and in a matter of a few retweets so it was it was absolutely a wild ride and made me a stronger but quite cynical person i think right yeah like what else would you expect to happen like when you go through something like that i mean you have to you have to grow thick skin really quick and you have to become hypercritical of just how everything you're saying and how it's being perceived and you have to fight back and it's so insane just how you worded that where you're expecting it to be the religious right community and it turned out to be more of this new 
alt-right online community. Like, I think it'd be interesting for you to get into that just a little bit. I mean, I can kind of give my brief overview of like how I perceive that group of people. Cause it's really interesting how when that movement emerged, a lot of people were confused at the language and how it was defined. Like there was a, it was very loosely defined and people weren't really sure like, okay, who's associated with this group? How is this different from traditional conservatism or neocons? And it really, to me, it was almost that this group emerged through the sort of technology wave of YouTube and podcasts and just online culture as a whole. Like a lot of these figures like Amilo, Yiannopoulos really came to be via podcasting and via these YouTube shows where he would go around and people would give him platforms. And at first you didn't really know, okay, like what is this person's intentions? Are they just a conservative? Are they just a provocateur? And as time went on and more and more people started getting associated, it was this weird new hub of people where some of them are atheists and some of them are like, I guess, traditionally liberal on certain values and then way more conservative on other values. So what has been your specific experience regarding that sort of online community of people that have harassed you in this uh, feminist movement? Because it is very different, like you were saying, than I guess what a lot of people would stereotypically assume. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right in that this new wave of alt-right, conservative, whatever you want to call them, this new generation, a new phase of, of political actors, uh, it's a really strange mishmash of people who genuinely have conservative views of people who came out of Gamergate and are kind of just like reactionary nerd culture people. There are people who are um, kind of uh, just purely sexist at heart and want to go back to a more traditional kind of society where men have more power. There's a whole strain of anxiety about men losing their own status and privilege. Um, It's a very odd mix of people who fall under this camp and share memes amongst them. And really the only things they have in common are their enemy and the things they want to take down, which Mm. are people who are more progressive, um, people who are agitating for feminism, for gay rights, for um, conversations about race, for queer people. Like at their core, I think a lot of these folks have very different values. Um, Some of them are more conservative. Some of them do believe in small government. Some of them are really just out to troll and create chaos. And I think you're right that the, the change in technology that we've had in the last decade have, has created not only a platform for these people, but a profit motive for having these extreme views. When you look at people like Milo Yiannopoulos, 10 years ago, he was blogging about how outrage and extremism are an opportunity to make money. And he, it, it was interesting to see him co-opt the messaging of Gamergate because he recognized an audience there that was easy to channel. Mm. And when you peel back their actual values, I don't know how much Milo Yiannopoulos or Paul Joseph Watson or Alex Jones, any of those people actually believe what they're saying. But what they do believe in is the massive amounts of money they can make on YouTube with ad revenue for spewing all of this crazy extremist nonsense. There's a way to make money in in the messaging that they're exploring, and there's an audience that is desperate for clarity, for some kind of leadership. You see this with Jordan Peterson, too, who's like more in that fringe of um, conservative, atheist, traditional. He's not an atheist, but like he runs in yeah, that, he, that he, crowd. Yeah, he circles, yeah. 
Yeah. And he, he's also making money with this audience. It's, it's a very odd mixture. Um, and my experience of it was that like a lot of the people who were taking issue with me, a lot of the people coming after me were coming after me because I started to talk about feminism in my first year or two of being like a, an internet public figure, putting public in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really receive much negative backlash when I was talking about herpes or sex education or shame or abuse. Like none of those things really put a target on my back. But as soon as I started to talk about feminism and slut shaming and Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton gasp, that was when I started to, that was when I started to gain backlash from folks because I I put feminism into the equation. I made it much more about the advancement of women and, um, and that kind of, that changed everything. So I think there's a lot of people are really mystified by the alt-right. I think people also, um, it's really entertaining in like a sad way to see people not really know how to handle the alt-right on the left because Mm. anything you do, anytime that you give them attention, anytime that you're outraged just feeds into their power with some of these figures. So a lot of folks on the left are really struggling to combat them because any, it's like any attention is good attention for them. Um, and I am, I have a lot of feelings about platforming and about inviting people to speak. And I have a lot of, I have a lot of opinions that I won't get into, but, um, it's been interesting to see even protests at schools like Berkeley against these folks speaking. It just, it winds up still giving them more power. Yeah. It it, it turns the other way. It turns everything around on them. It's like this weird. So I've followed this for the past few years as well. And I'm kind of, Like, I'm more progressive politically, but try my best, like, from my, I guess, place of privilege. Like, I try to lean moderate as much as I can to sort of stay on the outside looking in, like, when I'm Mm -hmm. observing a lot of these people, you know, these these actors, like you said. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting is when they were coming to power, a a lot of the most viral moments that really drove their success early on were those college campus protests or people like their so their whole narrative it, it came out or at least it, it didn't necessarily start but it got famed i guess with the whole gamergate situation like where the feminist narrative in that um sphere was you know women in gaming were trying to create more awareness toward toward the sexism in that community and a lot of the issues that had just never really been talked about and then the gaming community at large just it created this huge backlash and from there just the word feminism itself became such a buzzword where like now when you had these figures like a milo yiannopoulos who would go to a college campus and you'd have people there who were feminists or any type of progressive um person that was protesting him when when it would go to youtube they would be seen as these crazy people protesting and then it became just this super polarizing thing where like you had people who would just automatically side i guess with this alt-right uh whatever you want to call it like more right-leaning narrative that oh these feminists are all insane like this is all these are all crazy people and then you had the people more left-leaning who looked at that like no like we are trying to essentially stop the narrative that you guys are all 
pushing. So what, Mm -hmm. so like in the midst of all that craziness, as it's been going on the past few years, you you kind of briefly touched on just like what it's been like getting harassed for calling yourself a feminist and for openly talking about these sex at points and living with herpes and all that. So just at its baseline, like what are some of the notable differences that you can see online, like just from being a woman online openly talking about your opinions and your experiences amidst all this stuff versus like what it would be like for someone like me to talk about it because i know there's sort of like this stereotype there where or a stigma i should say where if i'm as a guy just openly on twitter talking about my sex life it's sort of seen like a popularity thing like oh he's a stud but then Mm -hmm. a lot of times when women are doing the same thing it's seen as this slut or, you know, this girl is, like, no good, or she's just, like, a harpy or something, you know, like, something (laughs) ridiculous. So, like, what has, have you noticed a shift, or has it always sort of been the same? Like, what's been your experience as a woman just being more open about all this online? I think that the election in 2016 was an inflection point where things didn't necessarily change online, but intensified. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more awareness now of harassment as an issue on the online platforms. There's so much more pressure being put on Jack Dorsey and people at Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook to really address head on the violence and abuse on their platforms. Um, And there's also so much more awareness of forces like the alt-right, of Russian bots, like all of these things that were kind of happening on the fringes for years and years where feminists and women of color especially were trying to raise awareness of like, hey, this is a massive problem. Mm -hmm. The election of Donald Trump brought all of that into the mainstream. And now more and more people are aware of the really messed up online environment. So it's been bittersweet in that I think that there is so much more awareness and sensitivity. People are being heard more often around these issues. There's so much more um, backlash against Twitter when it does make the wrong decisions about how to handle harassment. All of these things are being talked about. And that is that kind of visibility is so validating for people who are receiving abuse online constantly. It's, It's really nice to be able to say or to be able to see that that people are learning and understanding what that experience is like. Um, before the election, when I would talk about the abuse I received with my friends and coworkers, no one really understood. Understood. They like they they would say, "Oh, that's terrible that people say that to you." But there would also be that sense of, well, "Well, you should just log off." You know, like right, right. Just stop being online. You know, just it's just it's just strangers. It's just some person in their basement who's covered in Doritos who lives with their mom. Like <laughs> there was this total lack of empathy and understanding of how online violence really impacts people's psychology, how it can be traumatizing, hmm. how it has this chilling and silencing effect. And I think now there is this realization that there is no separation between online and offline life. There's no such thing as just log off. Um, The Internet is massively powerful. Facebook changed the course of the election. These things have consequences. And that that change in thinking has been really long overdue and interesting to follow. Um, 
I still receive the same kinds of harassment and abuse when I do talk about certain issues. I've changed my own um, activism. I don't really talk about having herpes as much anymore just because I don't have much to say about it. But I also just got really tired. Yeah, you closed um, that chapter. You've said you've done so much and it's, you know, you ran years like going off on this and writing about it. Exactly. And I, I feel like I don't have as much to add anymore. I want other people to start leading that conversation. I think there's there's a need for more diversity of experiences to be shared. I I am a Connecticut little white girl with like a <laughs> massive safety net and great healthcare and a very mild form of herpes. Like my experience is not that interesting compared to more marginalized folks, people who don't have access to healthcare. Like they're more important people to be leading that conversation right now. But I do still write a lot about sex and hookup culture and casual sex. And when, I've, when I do write about those experiences, I certainly get people calling me a slut and telling me, you know, well, this is why you got herpes and, um, telling me I deserve everything that's ever happened to me. Like that's, that's still a reality. Um, yeah. And it's funny, like, because I've been online and so online for the last few years, my sensitivity has changed. Like it takes a lot more to rile me up now, uh, than it used to. And in a way that's kind of sad that I've developed this thick skin where you can call me all kinds of names and it doesn't make an impact, but it becomes its own kind of superpower um, because I am very difficult to phase and I am everybody's like disaster relief person they bring in when they're experiencing harassment because I Mm. like... I'll tell people like, there's nothing you can show me that will face me anymore. Like (laughs) what's, what's the problem? Who's targeting you? What are they saying? Let's get to the bottom of it. Where is it coming from? I'll go into the depths of 4chan and try to find the harassment mob. Like it's given me this bizarre, super thick cyber skin. Right. Yeah. Cause well, you've seen the death threats and you've seen Mm -hmm. the, I feel like most people don't really have a concept for this because most people who aren't as online as someone like you, they never get to those points of exposing their beliefs or their identity to the point where someone would feel the need to attack them in some way, which is such a scary thing. Like the first time it happens to you, even if you're anonymous, even if you're on Twitter under some pseudonym and this happens to you, that's still scary. But then you take into the equation the fact that your real name is on Twitter. And when you do a quick Google search, you have all this information right at people's fingertips. So when they start to threaten you, it's not like you had said before when when coworkers or people who maybe weren't as attached to the online world would say, like, oh, it's just the internet, like, just log off. You start to realize this isn't just the internet. This is, this is life. The only difference really is geography. Like, the person yeah. who's threatening me might live across the country or across the world, but they're still a real person. Like, they're still putting a real threat out there. And I think there's this really weird guise over internet speak, and it's been there since I think the internet really started because no one has really understood it. We're all just internet babies trying to figure <laughs> fig- we're, we're like crawling along, trying to figure out what this thing is and how to work it. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're at the point now, like you had said, where elections are literally getting shifted by the internet. You know, public policy is being affected by the internet. The things people write every day online affect real life every day. It's not this online world and then real life world like they are one and the same connected through this very strange third place and i think um it's just it's really really important for more people to 
acknowledge that and to start to try to really understand the depth of some of these places. Like you had, you just mentioned 4chan and, you know, we talked a little bit beforehand just about your experience with that. So, I mean, for people who don't know, because I always hate this with with podcasting, it's so weird because you don't know whoever's listening, like how much they know Mm -hmm. and you don't want to be just assuming everybody knows everything about what you're talking about. And I think this is one of those things where people who are online have a pretty good grasp, but most people that I talk to day to day still don't really understand. So can you give like a little 101 on what 4chan is and what has been your experience with it the past? I don't know how long you've been on it, but I mean, obviously, observably, <laughs> you've, you've known about it since the election and all of this. So tell, tell us what's really good about uh, 4chan. <laughs> Nothing is really good about 4chan. <laughs> you set me up so well for that joke. Um, yeah. So and I like I am a, a hardcore internet power user, which I hate calling myself a power user, but I live and breathe the internet. So um, even I didn't fully understand 4chan until quite recently. But 4chan is an at its core, it's basically an online chat board where there are certain forums that are called threads. Um, and everyone is by default anonymous on 4chan. So there's no kind of username. Uh, it's a culture that thrives on anonymity. If you are trying to identify yourself in your posts and trying to build a name for yourself on 4chan, that's very antithetical to the environment and people will call you on it. So it is like, there are no rules and there is no sense of who you are. So no one is ever held accountable for what they've said. And that creates a very toxic culture very fast because it means that you can do whatever the hell you want. Um, 4chan has separate boards and areas, but the area that I think most folks hear about or think about when they think about 4chan is poll. Um, actually I don't know how they consider pronouncing that, but, um, for, uh, 4chan poll is the politically incorrect board. And it's where a lot of conversation happens about quote unquote, social justice warriors and politics and global affairs. And it's where a lot of the really disgusting, um, violent conversation starts. Um, 4chan is credited with starting a lot of memes. Um, and the, uh, like the cat, the cheese cat burger stuff from a million years ago, like deep internet that, that all came out of 4chan. So it wasn't inherently evil, but it has become a place where a lot of folks in the Gamergate world, um, that kind of group incels, like they have a safe haven on 4chan because 4chan is not moderated or regulated. Um, and a lot of times harassment campaigns will be formed on 4chan. So, uh, if a group of people, wherever they are in the world decides this feminist is speaking out of turn, or this person in the news is speaking out of turn, that's where a lot of folks will be finding and sharing their email addresses, their cell phone numbers, their residential addresses, who's their employer, let's get them fired. Like that's the environment where a lot of those campaigns are formed and mobilized because there's no real rule. There's no, there's no moderator coming in and and closing those posts down and saying that, that that's unacceptable here. Um, 4chan threads also expire within a few hours. So they, it's, it's very difficult to find the archive and navigate those conversations. Um, so if there is a group that's really focused on getting somebody fired or exposing some kind of controversy that they've invented, there will be dozens and dozens of threads created to keep that conversation happening. And it means if you are a victim or a target, it's incredibly difficult, even if you understand 4chan, to go back and find the moment where somebody was 
discussing getting you fired or sending you death threats. Right. So it's, it's really this wild West place. And I think people who are online savvy have like, have heard of 4chan and understand like it's the garbage pail of the internet. It's bad, but very few people understand how it works or genuinely how bad it is. Um, I spent a lot of 4chan recent, uh, of time on 4chan recently because somebody I knew was being threatened online and I saw so much revenge porn, um, so much, uh, casual racism, some slurs that I didn't even realize people still said, um, a lot, just a lot of hatred and bile, people showing off, people trying to be the worst human in the thread for fun. Um, and one post comes to mind, which was somebody saying he didn't understand why The Handmaid's Tale was a dystopia. He was like, this seems like a great deal. Wow. <laughs> and he like went point by point of like, men are given sex. It's redistributed to them. Women can't own property. Like women don't even have their own names. Like he was thrilled by it. And that's somebody clearly trolling and trying to be an extremely bad person. But the, the fact that that's a fun hobby for folks is, is just really sad. And, um, so yeah, 4chan is the worst. <laughs> it's <laughs> terrible. And it has like all of these different sister sites like 8chan um, and all of these different places that have spawned off of the 4chan model. And uh, it's still it's still a force. And even if those people are all teenage boys sitting in their parents' basement, like they still have access to the internet like everyone else. They can still write nasty emails. They can still get a story placed on InfoWars or Breitbart. Like, they they are a force to be reckoned with. It doesn't matter where they're coming from, what their access is like. They are the true keyboard warriors of the Yeah, year. Yeah, they, they truly, like, link together. I forget, do they call it brigading? They, they sort of, <laughs> they do things where, like, they can yeah. create groups to, like, create centralized attacks on specific people or articles or YouTube videos or wherever, and they <laughs> literally can take an entire group of a thousand or five thousand or however many people or even if it's just a couple hundred or a couple dozen like that is still it has a massive effect on the influence of publications or platforms like twitter or facebook like absolutely if, you know if, there, if there's a twitter thread or a, just a, a tweet that a company puts out or an individual puts out and all of a sudden it has hundreds of people or dozens of people going off on it about some super super negative nasty sentiment like that has a very real effect in the real world about how that's not not just going to be perceived by other people, but internally within company structures, within social media structures. Like it's really, it's really bizarre how deep this rabbit hole goes. <laughs> it's, it's very weird. And it's yeah. so. And do you feel? Do you feel like it's more? So obviously, four chains huge, and there's sort of corners of it that are more focused on just anime or just focused on like specific pop culture type of stuff. And then there's this sort of overwhelming um, grouping of it, which is this underground gamer, underground misogynist, um, whatever you would call it, in their mind, countercultural uh, grouping, which sort of makes up like what people know it as. Do you feel like what 4chan is today is more, is it reactionary? To progressive politics, like, how do you think, because to me it almost feels like, just like what you were describing there, where when you're seeing 
people trying to almost out extreme each other and they're trying Mm -hmm. to say the most absurd racist sexist crazy thing and you you never know is this person legitimate is this person trolling is it a mix and it feels oftentimes that these are people that were there already in real life but they've now taken it underground because like sort of when you look at Facebook generally or Twitter generally, these bigger platforms where social conversations take place, it's it's generally a very progressive place. Like it, it seems like progressive policies and progressive social movements tend to win in the public sphere, at least. You know, like obviously there's entire corners of Twitter and corners of Facebook where it's just conservative news and just conservative, you know, leaning individuals who who group together and that's that's its own thing but when it comes to sort of the the biggest accounts and the headlining news like a lot of it is more progressive leaning like a lot of social media companies they try to um like adjust to this so it feels like like to me at least personally that a lot of 4chan is they feel they've been suppressed and now like they've been driven underground and this is this is where the only place they can be honest about how they feel about the culture and the way things are changing and how we have to keep it a patriarchy and we have to keep it, you know, the way it was or whatever. So like, what, what do you think sort of created that or like, how, how would you define that um, movement of people? I do think that it's reactionary to progress. And I think that um, a lot of it is in the title of the board, politically incorrect. It's this space where, First of all, political correctness is, is, in my opinion at least, the idea that you should treat people with respect and that certain ways of conducting yourself, um, whether it's words you're using, policies that you have, are over time become considered disrespectful. And what we consider politically correct changes as the world becomes a better place, a more inclusive place. And 4chan's poll board is a place where they can say, screw that. We're going to say whatever we want. We're going to do whatever we want. And we're going to delight and enjoy using these terms that are offensive, these ideologies that have been deemed unacceptable as the world slowly moves forward. Um, it's a place, it's a safe haven for those kind of ideas, that kind of conversation. And a lot of it is total nonsense. Like if you read a 4chan thread, it is a mix of people who are deliberately trying to be um, incendiary, people who are trying to pick fights, people who are earnestly trying to have a conversation. Like I don't want to give 4chan too much credit as like an ideological organized place because it is it is a hot mess of um, of chaos demons just like getting (laughs) their kicks. Like it is it's it's not like um, like it's not like a think tank or uh, something productive. It is a release valve, I think, for a lot of for a lot of people who, for whatever reason, need that kind of or are drawn to that kind of um, environment. And but I do think that it is reactionary in that on my time on, on 4chan, I saw a lot of people responding to the day's news. I spent a lot of time there around the conversation about what's happening on the borders. And I saw a lot of people really delighting in these children who've been separated from their parents, being very gleeful, having fun, dehumanizing um, all of the immigrants involved. Like, so some of it, I think, was um, genuine 
racism and genuine hatred of these folks. Some of it was just really enjoying seeing liberals being trolled and progressive progressives, quote unquote, losing something like there was there's there's this reverence for Donald Trump on 4chan and on places on Reddit where any win that he has, no matter what it really means, is this epic thing. And haha, the liberals are losing. Um, So I think that it can be it can be reactionary. And I think and and performative and um, a serious threat to people's lives all at once. It's yeah. a bundle of contradictions. And uh, yeah, I don't know if I really answered your question, but um, no, you're perfect. Like, this is <laughs> this, is, yeah, it's, this, this it's isn't a, a cold interview. I'm not just like you must answer this exactly. <laughs> We're just rambling about the internet. It's fine. <laughs> My favorite thing to do. It's the best. But so so there is okay. For me personally, I'm a generally provocative person, and I'm naturally more of a contrarian. I grew up in a very conservative area, conservative family, a lot of friends, church, a lot of the church communities I grew up around very conservative. So I have that sort of piece of me that I rebelled against when I was in my teens. And now most of the people that I'm surrounded with are more progressive. So Mm -hmm. I'm used to engaging with them on day to day type of stuff. And I see through that lens, but I also still try to see through at least to understand a lot more of just my upbringing. I try to empathize more and figure out how in today's political climate, like what are some ways to, I guess, bridge some of these insane gaps that like we're sort of talking about here where, whereas, you know, when I look at a group, like the general idea of 4chan, which we're harping on here, like I, I look at that, that's too far gone. Like that's not really, that's not, I don't really see a tangible solution to sort of, to sort of uh, empathizing yeah, or, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, like I have any type of understanding or trying to bridge a polarization gap with people like that. It just feeds in to what they're already doing. Like, there's not really a way to... It's a lost cause. Yeah. yeah, it's a total lost cause. But when I do look at the day-to-day people in my life, like the people I'm interacting with, whether it's family or friends or friends of friends, I really try to be mindful of where... I feel like they're coming from in a way where I can try my best to understand it. So like when it comes to, I guess, some of the root causes of some of these issues that we're talking about, take any kind of social justice issue, whether it's gay rights or trans rights or feminism or fighting against racism, like take any one of these issues. I think a lot of what most of the conservative people that are in my life at least are looking at when they make critiques of them. Obviously, they make broad statements that I don't agree with at all. But I think some of the sentiment is that this whole, like you, you touched on the politically correct um, notion, which I think at its core, you defined it perfectly, which is just that as society progresses in one direction, naturally, we ought to leave behind certain mannerisms and vocabulary and just ways of being that the more we move forward, the more we see them as backwards. And I think that makes total sense. But then there's also this sort of other part of it, which because society is progressing at like a, such a fast rate, you know, like when you look at gay marriage getting legalized a few years ago, which feels like it was 10 or 15 years ago because time's moved so fast. So yeah, it's not, it was it's, really recent. Yeah, it's so, so recent. Like it just happened a few years ago. And since then, like all these other like brand new issues, like the entire idea 
of trans rights is so, it's so new. new. Yeah, like people it's have very new. It's it like hit people in the face. And like if you were a progressive, this wasn't a difficult issue, I guess. It was pretty obvious for most progressive people to be like, okay, yeah, duh. Like this is the next thing we want to focus on. But for a lot of conservative people, they had no not only do most conservative people have no in real life uh, connection to what this is, but they have no concept or education on what it is. So I think a lot of like the anti politically correct uh, sentiment, it comes from this like, oh, well, we're pushing society too fast, too soon, and it's creating there's safe spaces and trigger warnings, and there's all this stuff happening where I feel like I can't even voice my opinions without getting silenced or called out. So that's, and I'm, obviously, I'm kind of straw manning both sides with with generalized statements here but do you i guess what i'm saying is do you see in that like that's my experience at least from what i see just the sort of general conservative audiences voicing as society progresses forward so do you see any valid criticisms from their end of the spectrum or any things that you can address internally like when you look at yourself or your own like feminism when you look mm-hmm. at feminism as a movement that you support like do you see any shortcomings internally that you wish were highlighted better from within your own tribal identity to better improve this sort of difference and polarization gap yeah this is one of my favorite topics <laughs> Um, because I think, I think a lot of it, and we work in social media. So we think about this a bit from like a branding marketing perspective. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this comes down to messaging and really shitty, bad messaging. Who is defining these issues? Who is telling the story of these issues? How easy are they to understand? Um, are they being told through human stories? Are they being told through statistics? Are they, how are they being told and explained? Um, I had no idea that transgender people existed until I was maybe 18 when I left and went to a very liberal, very liberal university. And I I am someone who's very progressive and was very interested in women's rights from a young age, but I had no idea that trans people were out there. I had no understanding of trans issues and I did my best to educate myself and to learn, but I had access to those conversations and I had, um, an academic framework to understand them. So I, I was part of that, uh, section of the liberal progressive community that, that figured that out really quickly that that was the right thing to do. But I mean, my, my parents who are both liberals only learned about trans people recently. My mom learned more about trans issues from an episode of catfish (laughs) on MTV (laughs) a few years ago. I'm not really sure when my dad became aware of it, but like these issues These stories are new even to large swaths of the progressive community. And um, I've had trans people in my life for my entire life, but they didn't feel safe coming out to me. And in the last few years, I've had um, multiple friends and close, close friends who I've known my entire life say, actually, like, this is my real identity. These are the reasons why I didn't feel comfortable coming forward. And often it is those personal stories, that personal testimony that helps you understand the stakes of these conversations, why these issues are so important. But for a lot of the right and the conservative 
portion of the country, they're learning about, if we can continue with, with trans issues as an example, they're learning about transgender folks from the bathroom bills, from more conservative right-wing media. They're What they're hearing first, their first introduction, are these scaremongering, frightening stories about bathrooms and pedophiles in your bathrooms. Like, they're not com- they're not learning about the issue from a place of open-mindedness, and that's not their own fault. That's that's how the media is talking about it. That's the narrative that they're absorbing, and I think that we see that with a lot of with a lot of different issues. Of if the messaging is not coming to them in a place that's thoughtful, if the messaging has been co-opted or is coming from bad actor or somebody that just really doesn't agree, like it makes it so much harder to have that conversation and for them to, to learn. So it's definitely, it's definitely a force in society. It's, it's worth thinking about. I think it's so interesting how some media like Queer Eye, the new, the new seasons Mm -hmm. on Netflix are bringing an understanding of, of trans identity and trans rights to a wider audience. Um, even if they're not telling those stories perfectly, they're boosting that visibility, but it is true that the, the rate of change has gotten very fast and people aren't necessarily, they don't feel like they've had the time to catch up. Um, even when I came out as bisexual recently, um, a lot of folks were very confused about the fact that bisexual people exist. (laughs) That's so insane. I know. And it's bizarre to us because we spend so much time online and because we, we see that visibility, but for my parents' generation, there's still a lot of jokes of like, well, maybe you're actually gay or maybe you're going through a phase just because there's, there's not that same kind of representation and visibility in those communities, even though we are the B in LGBT. So it's really interesting to see that like, even in the progressive areas of the country, we're not perfect. We're definitely not perfect. We have our own misunderstanding and bigotry. And there's a whole bunch of um, agitation within the LGBT community about trans people and and how they're being excluded. And and, um, it's it's, we need to clean up our own backyard too. And then when you went like expecting somebody in rural Idaho to completely understand these issues, like (laughs) the, it's really stacked, the odds are stacked against them because of the media that they're consuming, the people who are speaking to them, the messages they're absorbing. Um, so that was, I just got on a soapbox there, but it's something that's been on my mind a lot as, as friends of mine, uh, deal with those things. And I do think it's like, I have these conversations a lot with friends who are conservative or not as leftist as I am of like, we're moving really quickly. And, um, I think part of it also too comes from the fact that no one really wants to think of themselves as a bad person. Everyone is the hero of the story. Everyone is a good person. And when you're told that, oh, you're being politically incorrect or, oh, you're being insensitive or bigoted or whatever, it really hurts you. It gets your defenses up. And your reaction is to be like, no, 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 you're wrong. How dare you? Maybe you're going too far. Maybe you're I'm a good person. How do Yeah. Like I, I don't hate black people. I don't hate gay people, but I just don't, it's up in my face, blah, blah, blah. Like that's coming from a feeling of, of, of defensiveness. And, um, and that's human psychology. Like I I've been called out for doing things imperfectly. And my first reaction is like, screw you. You don't know who I am. You don't know what's going on in my head yeah. because it's, it's uncomfortable to learn and it's uncomfortable to realize that you are part of this broader culture. I think that's the reason why the idea of privilege mm-hmm. creates so many barriers. Um, the idea of trigger warnings, the idea of being politically correct. It's people coming from that place of, 
I'm not a problem. I'm doing just fine. I've never hurt anybody. My family has struggled, even though we're right. Like we're, or that we're, even though we're, um, white, we've, we've struggled. Like it comes from a place of pain and of, of anger. And I think that we, we don't do a great job teaching people, um, how to communicate around those, around those issues of how to, how to learn, but also how to educate each other. And there's this been this rise of call out culture and saying people are canceled because they make a mistake. Right. Right. um, (laughs) It's people should absolutely be held accountable when they say things that are hurtful, but it's really helpful to turn to like, if you're have if you're hanging out with your friends from high school and one of them calls somebody else um, a slur, just saying like, "Hey, I'm not really comfortable with that word because of X Y Z," as opposed to saying like, "You're a bigot." Um, right. <laughs> like learning how to have those conversations, both as someone who's been called out and someone who is calling somebody else out, is is so vital if anything's ever going to change. Yeah, I I love all of that, and I'm with you with all of it. I I get so torn when I talk about this stuff because I try I really like, like you said working in social media you're constantly having to literally mediate conversations Mm -hmm. and to like sort of objectively take your own personal biases outside of the equation and really try to understand where this person is coming from so you can like deflate situations better and it's such a i get so like specifically around um the topic or the groups i should say of like feminists specifically like we'll just use that as an example really quick like i get so torn because or not even just feminists, like any kind of minority group or social justice type of group, I get very torn in how I even use rhetoric to talk about it. Because part of me is this on, on this sort of one side of the spectrum, which is this privileged side where I'm on the outside of those groups and I'm looking in at them with the mindset of come on everybody we should be doing better like we like you should be you know speaking more eloquently about these matters like you shouldn't be so outraged at these people like you shouldn't mm-hmm. have done this and i sort of can nitpick it apart from my own personal bias and my position but then the other part of me tries to think about it like i think one of the best examples is and you're looking toward the civil rights movement when you look at martin luther king jr and malcolm yeah. x and you had mm-hmm. malcolm x who on one hand was calling for revolution and calling for violence and for black people to take up like take back what was taken from them basically and to rise up and to not let the, the oppression of white america keep them down and like the social change had to come and it had to come forcefully and then on the same token on the other side you had martin luther king jr who was calling for peace and love and he was speaking in much more of like a uh, like i guess a palpable way for white people to sort of digest you know and like he was speaking about equality and like let's all come together and it was very moving in that way so you had these two conflicting individuals who wanted i think the same end goal in some way but their sort of methodology of getting there were so different and i think i can you can take that idea and sort of put the blueprint on what's happening right now where when i look at the social justice movements happen part of me thinks okay like when we look at through this lens of privilege like if i'm a person of privilege which i am i'm I'm a straight white dude living in America and I come from a fairly like upper middle class background. So I feel like I'm in a place where I can joke about that and acknowledge that for what it is. And I, from from where I'm sitting, it's like, okay, someone, I forget who coined this, but I've heard the analogy before where it's almost like 
someone's in the middle of a river drowning and like the drowning person is the oppressed minority and so someone's drowning and they're screaming at people that are safely on the shoreline for help and the process you know they're using all sorts of profanity and being like like (laughs) you idiot help me out and like they're they're doing whatever they can they're kicking and screaming because they need help and for a person of privilege to say to all on the shoreline who's dry and safe. You should stop swearing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like you should calm down. Like maybe yeah. I'd maybe I'd help you if you were more calm. And that's sort of the the picture I like to work with here because it's it's true. And it really feels like often, you know, we can focus so much, or at least from my position, because I am so critical of a lot of these social movements internally, you know, it's easy to focus on, I guess, the extremes, because like you said, they're what gets picked up by the media. They're what's highlighted. Yeah. You brought up uh, Jordan Peterson before. He's a perfect example, whereas, you know, like I said, I kind of I grew up in a pretty Christian evangelical community locally. So even though I sort of detached myself from that, like when I was a teenager, I'm still fascinated by spirituality and just the idea of God and why are we here and all that sort of existential nonsense. It's just fun to rant about. And when, <laughs> when a guy like Jordan Peterson comes along, like when he first had his big public appearance on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, you know, he went on there because of that entire that trans rights bill that was being passed in a uh, Canada, which that Bill C-16, which is literally what he went viral over. So mm-hmm. he got invited on that podcast to talk about that. So that in and of itself, that's millions of people's introduction to that issue. And it's a yeah. negative one because now it's like even if he as an individual who obviously I don't know him, all I know is his rhetoric and like what I've seen and listened to him. So like I don't know like at his core if he's transphobic or what his intentions are. Like, he said that he isn't publicly, but, like, that, just his stance on that alone is enough to create that sort of wave for people. Like, that is, like, they have now, it's it's created an enemy for people. You know, people now see trans people or trans rights activists, I should say, as the enemy in that situation. And for him, like, I got intrigued by him early on, not because of those issues, but because he's so into mythology, sort mm-hmm. of like Joseph Campbell type of stuff. So I thought that was all super fascinating. And I loved following him for that. But then, like, as time has gone on, like, he's become so much more politically motivated. And he's really, like you mentioned before, like guys like Paul Joseph Watson, and there's mm-hmm. guys like Michael Cernovich, and there's all these guys. Oh who my have, God, Mike Cernovich. He's literally the my worst. <laughs> but they, they, they've all sort of ridden this this post-Gamergate wave, like we've been yeah, talking they about, have. and they, they make so much money, like monthly, whether it's Patreon or YouTube subscribers, like they, they're making all this money from an audience that I don't really think they fully grasp what it even is because they're seeing like okay some some rich uh people were paying a couple hundred bucks to come see their live events or you know maybe like they've met some like really nice people who follow them and i'm sure obviously those people exist but like a lot like the bulk of their online following is these people from 4chan and these like deep reddit communities that are just really toxic in all this and it's such a weird I don't know. It's such a weird balancing act to end my rant here. Like, it's such a weird thing, like having to try to understand where one side and where the other side is coming from and to approach it from a place that if you are talking to the quote unquote other in your life, whether that's a conservative or a progressive, you have to sort of figure out ways to get them to keep their guard down. And doing that is 
so difficult when every entry point to education with these issues is like the, an inflammatory YouTube video or some like yeah. news clip. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's these two, it's these central questions of how do you change somebody's mind and how do you listen to somebody when your minds are different? And, um, I definitely see a thread in what you were talking about of like, how do we, how do we have a productive conversation? How do we have productive forms of activism? How do we talk about these issues without alienating and driving people even further back into their separate corners. And then you have people like Jordan Peterson and Mike Cernovich. Mike Cernovich was the first person on the alt-right to discover me. So we have a special bond. Um, (laughs) You have, you have figures like that who are intentionally sowing more chaos and distributing misinformation because there's a profit motive for them. So they make things even more difficult to navigate. Um, just to go back to the idea of like Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X, Martin Luther King was incredibly unpopular at his time as well. Like the history has remembered him fondly and he's been kind of like whitewashed and made himself. He's become become, a conservative icon. (laughs) Yeah. And he's become like more respectable because of the way that we tell his story in, in schools, even in public schools. Like we forget the fact that he, what he was doing was incredibly radical, even if it was nonviolent. Like he, he was not beloved at the time. And I think that it gets to a lot of the conversations we've been having recently about civility and, um, and of like, not uh, not alienating people. What's really rude and polite in this time? How? What are you supposed to do if you're in a marginalized position to uh, stand up for yourself without being called like a crazy lunatic fringe or a social justice warrior or like the hateful left because right. you don't want to serve uh, Sarah Sanders like a cheese plate? Like. There's no real way to win, I think, if you're an activist in this current moment, because everything you do is seen as going too far. But if you are doing everything by the book and being completely well-behaved and whatever, you're never going to get an audience. No one's ever going to listen yep, to you. No one Nothing's cares ever going to change. Yeah. Like even like the Parkland kids and the agitating they're doing, they're doing very traditional old school protesting of, of having die-ins and getting, um, arranging boycotts and, and calling out advertisers. And even they're being told by the right that they've gone too far. And it's like, no, they're doing what people have always done. It's just that what they're doing is unpopular with certain folks who disagree with them. Um, and I, I actually think that my activist work around herpes is a really interesting case study of this kind of thing, because like, there, there has always been a conversation about STD stigma in the States since the AIDS and HIV crisis in the 80s. So, like, I, ha- I did not reinvent the wheel by any means. But um, when I started writing about living with herpes, I was one of the first people to kind of cross over into the mainstream press for a while of women's health and BuzzFeed and the Daily Mail and the Guardian and all those places. For some reason, I was just the person they chose to talk about those issues with. And I think it's because on the surface, I'm very respectable. I am this like, they were able to tell this story about this white girl next door from Connecticut who went to a little Ivy League school and like worked at TED. And and I'm I'm considered this like very safe, good victim kind of person. So if she has herpes, you know, we really need to like take this seriously because it could really happen to any one of us. And in reality, like I ran my university's porn magazine. Like I was a published erotica author. I'm bisexual. Like I am not that perfect. Like, (laughs) but they took that part out of the story, um, when they covered me and a lot of people were really willing to listen to me and have their minds changed because I kind of played that part. But at the same time, like 
what really made a difference and what really helped people change their minds was using personal stories, personal anecdotes, laying out the case of like, I, um, I had always used condoms and, um, I, I re like I worked for Planned Parenthood. I did everything right. And I, in some ways I was like the perfect example and the perfect, like I was the extreme case of like, Oh, this really can happen to anyone. But when I started using humor, when I led with my own story and my own experience, when I, when I led with that and led with also curiosity of like, this is an experience you may not understand that you've never heard of before. When I cashed in on that novelty, a lot of people were willing to listen to me and have their minds change and understand that, Oh, you know, herpes is really common. And Oh, wow. I never understood how it was transmitted and condoms aren't that effective. And like leading with that, with telling a story was really effective. But when I get really mad on Twitter, because like, like Vice News wrote a shitty headline about herpes or like so like John Oliver did a herpes joke or Michelle Wolf even just this weekend made a joke comparing Ivanka uh, Ivanka Trump to herpes like when I angry tweet about that and how fucking offensive it is excuse my language that I'm being compared to Ivanka Trump because I have an STD like when I lose my shit like that um, and lead with anger I'm usually just speaking to the people who already agree with me. Like right, it's, it's, right. it's not going to change anybody's minds necessarily. And, um, it's, it's interesting. Like I never want to tell someone that they can't get mad. I think anybody who is marginalized, who's experiencing an oppression absolutely should be mad. Anger can, um, motivate you. Anger can motivate you to go do the work, to get people registered, to turn people, uh, from bystanders into actors in this world. So, I am totally on the side of anger. It keeps you alive. It gets you to do the work, but it's difficult to have conversations with people who don't agree with you when you're stepping into that conversation with anger. And I think that, um, one of the, the thing about feminism and, and race and all those things, like that's a really an opportunity for allies who may be white, maybe straight, maybe male to step in and have those conversations um, because they, they don't, they don't have that kind of anger and that kind of pain and they can have those conversations, um, from a place of patience and empathy in a way that is, is quite difficult for, for some of us to do when it impacts us so deeply. Like my, um, one of my close friends has a friend from high school who's a Trump voter. And I was like, look, I'm not going to talk to them about politics, but feel free to use my personal stories when you talk to them to try to talk about Infowars and Trump. Like I don't have the energy to do it. I will get really upset. It makes me feel unsafe. Like I cannot do that, but that's something you can do. Um, so who are we asking to have these conversations? Who are we asking to be educators? Who is really most effective? And sometimes it is like the affable bro who is progressive, who can talk to his friends on his softball team and be like, Hey, like, um, let's think about these things differently as opposed to his like very stressed out girlfriend who is freaking out about Roe v. Wade in the court, like like thinking about who is going to be the best people to have those conversations so that they will really be heard is I think useful. And, and it's pragmatic, even if it's really, it feels really uncomfortable and clinical to think about. Well, it's so interesting hearing you talk about all this, too, through the lens of someone who's a social media manager, because, again, 
you, even though you spend every day in the trenches of online culture and having to sort of diffuse um, anger and situations of people either trolling or upset customers or whatever that might be, you're saying like it doesn't really matter how good you are at being online. You're going to get mad sometimes. Like there's, there's yes. points where if something, if somebody hurts you or if there's something wrong with culture or there's something wrong that someone has done publicly, people need to talk about it and people need to be honest with their feelings sometimes. Like you can't just expect everybody to play nice all the time. Like I'm even, I, I got to the point now or like I'm sure similarly to you that I don't really get, like you said, your, your sensitivity is way different than from before all this, because I don't, I also don't get as mad easily at, at things people say online, but I still Mm -hmm. do. Sometimes it just gets to you and then you let go. And I think, you know, that, that does carry some negative connotations to it, but it's also a very human reaction and it's something that we all do. And I think pretending like, that's not just part of the human experience because we want to, I don't know, like be perceived as like holier than thou or something. It's just ridiculous. And I think you, you made a lot of great points in there, like especially around just like figuring out who is your audience, like who are people that we can communicate these ideas to. And I think when you do open up, especially through humor, that is such an important gateway for people mm-hmm. to understand. Like even talking about a lot of these subjects, like there's a lot of people I know who would hear some of the topics that we're talking about, like whether they're more conservative or they're more progressive, and they'd hear something like, uh, I don't know, like feminism, and they'd turn off. Or they'd hear something like we're talking about like trigger warnings or safe spaces, and they'd turn off like one way or the other way. And I think when you're able to joke about this stuff and to be kind and understanding and try to like really under like really understand the other person's or the other group's position that's when people do like you sort of do get those um those fringe individuals who might be like teetering on the edge of like not really understanding or having like a formed identity one way or the other and you can kind of gravitate them a little bit more toward what like wanting to to get this stuff and yeah, yeah I, I think a lot of that and it's it's interesting too from your position you mentioned a lot of this you came from you know your sex blogging and all that from uh the college you had gone to so like how how important have you found blogging to be in all this because it really it feels like to me you know, years ago before this was even a thing, like someone like you never would have, or I shouldn't say never, probably never would have had a platform to really come forth about your experiences. Like, have you, like, uh, like what are, I guess, some of the net positives and the net negatives that you've experienced in the blogging community since you've come out about all this stuff? Yeah, I think the internet has given so many people a platform that they never would have had access to before. And I think that that can be both a positive and a negative thing. Um, and that's like, obviously like the least innovative thesis statement to lead with, but I think it's absolutely true. Um, there, there's always been a conversation about feminism and sexuality and queer identity and, and race, but it's always been limited to the communities that were already engaged, or maybe it was zines that were being Xeroxed and sent around the country. Like there, there was no massive platform available that would have a large reach for people who were in marginalized communities. Um, and on the other side of that, people who were 
like just self-described incels could never find each other. People who were having these, like, like the furry community (laughs) (laughs) to take an example, like the internet has allowed people to find each other in this completely unprecedented way and to tell their stories in a completely unprecedented way. There are no gatekeepers for blogs. There's no editor making a decision about like, should we put up this unverified story? Like there's, there's been this absolute breakdown of barriers online and it can be incredibly life affirming and positive for folks who are going through difficult, traumatic, shameful issues. Mm. It allows you to find each other, to share experiences, to share knowledge, to share support. If you are a, uh, a queer teenager, you can go online and come out to a community of strangers and find that hope and that support and that, that, uh, purpose. So that, that can be great for me, blogging and places, especially Tumblr were a massive support after I got diagnosed. It was a space to learn about my diagnosis, about blood tests, about how to talk to partners about herpes. Like the internet saved my life. And often when I see folks who are struggling with a diagnosis, it's because they are so isolated that they're too afraid to even type into Google people with genital herpes or whatever else. Like the internet is a lifesaver for folks who are stealing or who are, who are struggling with shame. But at the same time, then you have the rise of InfoWars, you have the rise of Breitbart, you also have on the left, like the rise of wacko conspiracy theorists, like it's something that happens on both sides of the political spectrum. There's less of like a liberal media arm for the hard, hard left, but it's definitely out there. You have um, podcasts that are distributing news. I get most of my news from Crooked Media, which is like a left progressive uh, media company that's all ex-Obama staffers. So like clearly I'm living in my own echo chamber. (laughs) I try to, I try to complement that with NPR and the New York Times and the Washington Post, but like I definitely fall into that camp, too, of someone who's getting this slanted look at the world. And you have that on the right as well. So um, it's it's been an interesting pro and con of, of the Internet. And it's like the alt-right has become this powerful, powerful force because the Internet gives them the tools for that. And then you have like people in Silicon Valley, the, the C-suite level folks at Facebook and Twitter who obstinately refuse to acknowledge that they are now political actors because they're offering platforms and homes for these conversations in an unprecedented way. And it's not in their best interest as companies to admit that that's what they're doing either, because then that gives them a moral obligation to control them and to own the consequences of those communities. So like that's become a whole other issue too of what do we do with, with Facebook and Twitter now that they are replacing the media in terms of where people are getting their information and where people are organizing and having these conversations and becoming a vector for violence and abuse as well. Like I've had experiences with stalkers online and Facebook and Twitter and Google will never give the police information without a very powerful subpoena of like, what's the IP address of this person sending me death threats? Like it's this, it's a hot mess. (laughs) So the internet has saved my life and my, the internet has threatened my life so many times. And that's, I think the, the new reality, the new normal for quite some time. Yeah. It's so insane. I think, I think a lot of people don't really still, even though we're now two years, almost completely past the uh, 2016 election. I think a lot of people still don't understand 
the sort of origins of like where Donald Trump's whole fake news thing came out. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, there's obvious like we have obvious partisan biases like like most most conservatives, I think, if you polled them, would at least admit to understanding that Fox News is conservative news. Like it's conservative entertainment news. They don't really try to hide that. Just like MSNBC doesn't really try to hide that they are partisan left wing mm-hmm. um, news and it's entertainment news. Whereas the whole fake news thing came into being because of CNN, because CNN has always sort of posed itself as trying to be unbiased. Like they, they really they set their um, journalism standards to like a little bit like a, a tier, a little bit above. Like this, it's still entertainment news, but like they try to they try to brand themselves like they don't have any partisan bias. And then yeah, I hated those ads they ran with like this is an apple. It uh, is not what I was just like. Oh my god, yeah. we get it. It's <laughs> we so get ridiculous. It. And then it's like okay, it, it's 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 like it falls in line. Like okay, so they had that whole thing happen where they were like leaking um, cards to Hillary Clinton in the debates or something like that. And then, yeah, there was some scandal about the questions. Yeah. And then conservative media freaks out and it's like, okay, CNN isn't nonpartisan. Like they're, they're obviously a partisan thing. And then it becomes this whole bigger question, like what you're bringing up, like similarly to Facebook or Twitter, where Facebook maybe as an entity, which I think similarly to, okay, CNN maybe as an entity, these are by their nature, nonpartisan in some way. But at the end of the day, they're still run by people who have partisan biases one way or the other. So that's where it gets really complicated because like with Twitter, you see people get banned all the time on the left and on the right. And it creates this entire like really weird thing where conservatives think Twitter is like this liberal mecca and they're trying to shut down free speech for all conservatives. And then you have liberals or I should say more progressives who think who a lot of progressives get on their accounts banned or suspended because they're like defending um, someone and they get attacked or brigaded by a big group. And it just there's, there's all these back and forth things where everybody sort of has like their narrative on, okay, this media platform is biased against my party. Whereas I think a lot of it, it's just the fact that Twitter and Facebook employ thousands of people, a lot of which are just these like relatively, maybe not entry level, but they're people working essentially customer service to yeah. to manage the the shit show that is happening, you know, on a day-to-day they're basis. they're just doing the best they can. Yeah, and, and they have biases. And like, I think that's yeah. like the weird thing. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe Facebook isn't completely right-wing or completely left-wing, but like there's still people within Facebook who have partisan biases. And that's like a really strange, complicated, it's way more nuanced i think to have to look at it that way versus the sort of left right narrative paradigm that we're in where it's all one way it's just fake news it's just like the they're just liberal propagandists on the on the left and then on the left it's all like they're giving blue check marks to richard spencer and all this like like twitter loves nazis and it becomes this like really strange space where we're all still kind of trying to figure out like what are the responsibilities of these social media platforms, what are the, are some of the protocols that should be in place for mm-hmm. the, for the employees there, and and how they should be publicly addressing some of these issues? Because they can't. It's it's at the point now, whereas maybe like a decade ago, you could have hid behind like this is our position, or we are not taking a position one way or the other. Whereas mm-hmm. now, companies are so entwined with 
like policy and just online culture that yes. they can't they can't yeah. hide anymore. Like, have, yeah. you, have you experienced that at all? Like with Ted or just like your work Ooh, in yeah. general? Like, like what's Ted's like people like attacking Ted for like what their positions are or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that any brand in this current moment, whether it's a brand or a publisher or a company is dealing with these issues of being asked to take stances and being asked and like being held accountable for things in a way that's really unprecedented because the social media has given people the microphone to do that. And I think in some ways it's amazing, but I think it scares the crap out of a lot of companies and organizations where that may not feel natural to them. They just want to sell soda or they just want to put out (laughs) talks or like it's, they don't want to, that it's not in their nature to do those things. And I think that, um, we've had, we talk about some of these issues at Ted too, of like, what are our values or like, what are, where do we want to take stances? And, and Ted, uh, at the end of the day is about spreading ideas. It's about giving speakers a platform. It's about starting conversations. And, um, it's been interesting having, um, our speaker choices be, be questioned or, or, um, how, like when, when the Supreme Court decided that gay marriage was law of the land, we changed our logo to be rainbow colored as almost every other publisher did that day. And we were really excited. And um, most of the social team at that time was in the LGBTQ community. So for us, it was this exciting moment of seeing ourselves uh, have that progress. And that started off a firestorm in our comments of people like, Ted, you're nonpartisan. How dare you talk? Like, how dare you turn rainbow? And we were like, well, we're like, we're, we're gay. Sorry. (laughs) It was this this interesting moment. And even internally, it was this conversation where people internally were like, well, we don't take stances like that. And then there was this interesting conversation kicked off. And it's still something that we're thinking through of like, what, what is Ted's role in this moment? And at the end of the day, we are, we are here to start conversation and help people hear each other and, and help people learn We're we're here to, to offer education and context in these moments. Um, but I think that what you were saying earlier about CNN is interesting and, uh, about these companies, we've kind of lost sight of the fact that journalists are people. Um, my mother is a local journalist and any good journalist who, who really cares about the work knows that they have their own biases and tries to check them at the door and tries to do the active work of telling the honest, true, fair story, uh, and, and putting their own, their own political backings or whatever on the back burner. Like that is, I think that's a struggle that a lot of journalists really tackle head on, but journalists make mistakes. Journalists sometimes get the facts wrong. And I think that we, there, there are journalists all the time who will accidentally report something on Twitter. And then the entire organization is called fake news. But in reality, there was just like a small confusion. Right. And, um, we've lost the, uh, we've lost the patience and understanding for the fact that journalists are people. We also like the Twitter conversation about is Twitter left or is Twitter right? And why are they verifying Nazis and why are they doing X, Y, Z? Twitter wants to make money. That's what Twitter wants to do. And Twitter sees that it's bad for the bottom line if they kick a bunch of people off their platform. But they're also seeing, oh, it's really bad for our bottom line if a bunch of people are being abused on our platform. So they're trying to figure out how to balance these, this responsibility for the conversation they're having because they don't want to lose users, but they also don't want to be considered censors and being cracking down on free speech. So they just want to make money. CNN 
is, at the end of the day, also a company that wants to make money. Trump has been exceptionally good for their ratings, for for advertising, for selling airtime. And so CNN, yes, it is a news organization, but there's also somebody saying, like, how much money are we going to make? So companies want to make money. Journalists are people. There's this new expectation and appetite for transparency from um, from citizens, from users. People want to understand how these decisions are getting made, but that's really antithetical to a lot of how companies work because you don't want to show vulnerability, but then you also are adding more confusion when you're not explaining how did this mistake get made? How did this decision get made? What are our company's values? There are brands that are doing this so well. Like, um, what's the company that I'm, I'm Patagonia. They've been very open with like, these are our values. These are the fights we're going to fight. And I think that a lot of brands are seeing that that is very good for their bottom line, but it does definitely mean that they are taking a stance and it's, it's a decision that publishers and brands have to make of, um, what is ultimately best for our business, but what are our values? Who are we? How human do we want to be? How transparent do we want to be? And it's especially interesting for social media managers who are often in these situations where like, oh God, all these people on Twitter are asking us about XYZ. And if you're a social media manager, you are not super high in the hierarchy of the company. <laughs> yeah, you're not like and a corporate you, overlord. Just yeah, <laughs> and it's not really up to you. And you have to figure out how to respond quickly, but also not cross over a line. Like even I'm doing the mental calculus of like how much can I actually talk about what's going on at TED because I'm yeah. not a spokesperson. Um, and like I don't know what what somebody's vision might be. And for social media managers, we're in this really messed up position where we are the front line, the voice for our brand. And there, that is a huge amount of responsibility, but we are not senior for the most part. And it is a very difficult line to walk. And anytime I see like a brand going through a crisis, I just do like a silent agnostic prayer for the social media manager who's (laughs) reading all those mentions because like, they had nothing to do with whatever happened, and they are having a very rough week. Yeah, people have no idea who aren't in social media just how much this affects the mental health of someone who is at that it's level. Awful. It's insane because yeah. it really is. I mean, for me, like with the the brands that I run, most of it's super low key. I mean, the the biggest brand being Stakem with the uh, attention it gets. The over mm-hmm. for some reason, just with the way. I was. We were sort of allowed to uh, create the brand voice, where, where the tone is very online and, and meme oriented. Because of that, the a lot of the sentiment is overwhelmingly positive on it. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, I don't have to deal with a ton of trolls day to day, which you'd think I would, because it's like this frozen meat company. So it's like that's a hot topic amidst vegans, and <laughs> you know what I mean. Like it's like a weird. Yeah. It's a really weird uh, space to be online. It's like I, I have I follow a lot of vegan accounts on it so it's uh it's interesting but needless to say like anytime i do run in to a situation where someone is whether it's unhappy with product or coming after something i said like i had an instance the other week where do you know do you follow the account uh, nihilist arby's yes so such a funny account and the, the guy who runs it is hilarious and I've, I've followed that well before i was even into social media management like it's been around for years and classic it's so so good and once in a while i've jumped in from the stakem account just because it's sort of i guess topical like they're both it's a meat parody obviously but like there's still similarity there to jump in together and um this past month i forget when it was exactly i jumped onto it because oh oh it was right after 
after IHOP changed uh, to IHOP, and then Ugh. all the brands, inclu- the including me. Yeah. <laughs> it was me. I was on. I can't even tell. It was like 12 hours that day. I was just tweeting. <laughs> and it was, uh, I I got, like, we got publicity for Steakum for being one of the brands like Wendy's and Burger King and all of them that changed their name and, like, were poking fun at it. So, anyway, that had all happened. And then the following day, Nihilist Arby's came out with a tweet in classic nihilist fashion just making fun of the brands who had posted about that from the day before and me not just being i guess not totally self-aware because i guess i've used this uh this term in a lot of contexts in progressive circles and i've never felt like i was hurting anybody with it but from the stakeham account i went to that tweet and just wrote triggered on it and i had in in my mind i wasn't thinking anything of it i was just like oh yeah like this he's referring to me and like i know the guy running the account so like this is hilarious it's like an offhanded thing so anyway it ended up getting so much traction in the like online trans like anonymous trans community whereas like a bunch of progressive users took the tweet of that and then we're like Stakem's a terrible company like I can't believe mm-hmm. like they would do this and it ended up getting hundreds of users like retweeting it and tweeting hateful stuff at me like about how Stakem like supports domestic violence and <laughs> Stakem is like anti-veteran and all this stuff and I was like it was insane and I was having to yeah. scramble because I was like this could easily snowball like if I let this go this could easily snowball into mainstream, not mainstream, but like into media coverage of someone yeah, being and like. and then some boss is going to be like, what did you do? Exactly. So I had to like figure out, like, do I delete the tweet? Like, do I apologize? Like, do I kind of try to play it off like I didn't know or what I was joking? Because I really had no clue it was going to yeah, stir up. Yeah, how do you handle up. that? Yeah, so <laughs> it was, I ended up just going back and forth with a few of these people who were just spewing hate at me i mean it was it was really like horrific stuff some of the things they were saying to me but it was like again i it's in a situation like that it's so difficult to detach from the person behind the brand from the brand because it's like Mm -hmm. yeah like these people were attacking the brand for saying something that they were offended or hurt by but i'm still a person responding to that so i'm Mm -hmm. getting that hate (laughs) and it's like such a weird people just aren't really i think aware of how intimate the job is, you know? And I think, yeah. you know, when it comes to a lot of these policy positions and, like, like the LGBTQ stuff, it's like that's that's such a weird one because it's socially, like, media companies generally are very pro. that, And it seems like just in, like, public, the public spectrum in general, like, it's become more normalized over the past couple years. But there is still that hard line because even though it's sort of normalized now, there's still about somewhere around 50% of the country isn't for it. Like, there's still conservative uh, Christians who aren't pro any of these things. So it's, like, a really weird line that, like, companies still have to dance around even just social issues like that, like forget political issues, because that's not even really, it shouldn't at least be even be a political issue. It's a social issue. So it's Mm -hmm. like, we really do have to constantly be reevaluating, you know, what are our brand ideals and our, what are we allowing the people like the social media managers to be saying about any of these issues? Like it really is so complex and annoying that, it's as polarizing as it is because it feels like 
I don't know. Like when I, even when you look at a company, like I've talked to friends of mine about like Urban Outfitters. Like Urban Outfitters, a few years ago, they had the, um, I think it was the CEO who was donating money to an anti-LGBTQ group. Yes, I right? remember that. So like that was happening. And obviously the, like the vast audience and consumer base for that company is progressive or at least left-leaning-ish. It's such a weird position to be in because then you have people protesting the company saying we should stop buying from here you know the owner is anti all this stuff but then you think about it like when you step outside a little bit it's like okay wait is the owner really anti this or is he just about profit and then you step outside even further and you think okay wait he's just one guy like he might be the owner but he makes up a board of thousands of other employees and people mm-hmm. who make up the lifeblood of this of this company which they all have families to support and careers and goals so like when you attack the company are you really attacking him or yeah. are you attacking the the individuals who are supported by this company and it's it's a really it's just so complex i get out of breath just like thinking about it. <laughs> well, it's it's really daunting. And it's like, it is true that any company is made up of dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of employees, and all of them have their own different opinions and their own values and their own ways in which they try to make the world better according to whatever moral rubric they have. And just to go back to social, like we, we just hired a new team, team member on our social team at TED. And two of the things we really look for when we're hiring for social is a vo- voice, so your ability yeah. to write copy that is that it embodies Ted, but has has humor, has um, snark, has color. Who who can who can pull out what's most interesting about the content that we're sharing? Like we really do want to hire for voice, but we also really want to hire for judgment. We want to hire for somebody who can look at something in that moment and say. What is the consequence of this? How are the millions of ways it can be interpreted? What is the what is the um, the positive and the negative? Is this a risk too far? And uh, even when I'm writing weird tweets, I'll go to my boss and say, like, is this too weird? Is this just right? Like, can you get can you give me a gut check on this? Like, yeah. um, so we have those processes built in of like, am I going too far? Can I create this Photoshop of an otter on the TED stage so that I can reply <laughs> to one of these zoos who started a meme? Like, can you give me this gut there you check? Go. Yeah. So anybody working in social has to be able to put their own personality and their own humor into the work. But also at the end of the day, remember that they are representing a larger organization. And TED is a wonderful place to work because employees are really allowed to be their own people outside of the office. Like TED has been so supportive of me being a sex writer, me talking about herpes. Like I I gave a TEDx talk and like, it's um, not that I got that because I work for TED, but like um, they're they're not ashamed of what I do. And a lot of people who work for TED are, are people of color or are queer or are wherever they are on the political spectrum, like people are allowed to be humans and to to do things online that that um, maybe aren't TED values or TED priorities, but like it's seen as out of the office, and um, and that's a luxury. Like I, I I am I I'm very loyal to TED as an employee because I'm like, what other company would let me do this kind of stuff? Right. Yeah. It's so hours? stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at the same time, like when I am at work. I have to be very careful of, I, Ted, I have this reaction to the news, but that cannot be, like, that has nothing to do with my day job. That is something that I will process and that, like, you need to be able to draw those lines. And it is, it is very difficult to do. 
Um, and especially as like brands and publishers really try to engage with the current conversation, like the mood on social is so dark and people are really looking for a transparency and for people who are being authentic. And it's created this rise, like this wonderful rise in brands having much more voice like Stakeums, like Moon Pie, like there's been this rise of ship posting and this increased transparency that like, yes, there is a human running this account. Um, but at the same time, when people think that a brand or a publisher has done something wrong, if they've written a tweet, they disagree with, if they've done all those things, suddenly it is, Oh my God, this brand is the worst brand on earth. They are canceled. And it's like, (laughs) you, you love it when it's transparent that like, Oh, I'm a miserable social media manager tweeting at Thanksgiving about Moon Pie. But like, God forbid that one individual makes a mistake because then it is the entire company that's being reflected upon. It's, it is like, it's why I get so mad when people are like, Oh, there's some intern running this account. I'm like, do you know how stressful my job is? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know how difficult it is to do? It's so insane. Everybody thinks we're interns. Yeah. The stakes are incredibly high. The stakes are so high. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping that was being communicated there. (laughs) (laughs) I always have to underline the joke so that everyone knows. I'm a funny person. Uh, right. Isn't it funny too when you say things out loud? Like be, just from being online so often throughout the day, especially Twitter, you realize how many jokes that you see on a daily basis that on Twitter in the text format are hilarious. And you try to yep. like say them out loud and you're like, wait, this isn't Not no, funny. No one's going to get this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's too niche. It's so funny. Yeah. Like that, I think about that all the time. Just how. The stakes are it's it's so funny. You're right. Like it's like one end of the spectrum. We we have this great transparency and people are demanding it in general across all platforms, like not just social media, but we people in general, I think nowadays are just expected to be more transparent about everything they think. Everything like no one's no one's identity exists in a vacuum anymore. Whereas before like before the internet, you would all you would know about someone most likely would be if they're conservative or if they're liberal. Now mm-hmm. it's like it's not enough to know if someone's quote unquote conservative or liberal. We need to know what their stances are on literally everything. And when you find yeah. that one thing that you don't like, you can, like you said, cancel them. And it's like this really weird space to be in because, yeah, like especially online, you do have this expectation from uh, users and consumers like we want these funny, fun, interactive, uh, not just brand accounts, but just people like we want. Yeah. We want the online space to be this super engaging, fun, awesome place. But at the same time, like all those people, as soon as they make one bad joke or they say something out of context or they write something that maybe they shouldn't have written or they didn't know that was bad. Like I was just saying before, like that that word triggered that I use, which I had no idea. It's like you could do something like that. And on the, you know, the flip of a coin, you are now you're done. Like you, people are up in arms and it's not just you, it's the company. And that really is such a difficult thing, I think, to keep in mind. Like, I don't know, like what, like for for me, for for when I do, like, so I'm the only uh, social media manager at our agency, but Mm. I have a couple people that are younger and creatives that I'm constantly bouncing a lot of these ideas and tweets, like just to make sure, like you can't, especially in like the more, social um political uh borderline issues like if i'm gonna like poke a joke at something that's happening in the news right now like i need to make sure like i need to get some kind of feedback from somebody to make sure like hey is this too 
um, incriminating? Is this too inappropriate? Like what, like, is this okay? And I, you have to have some kind of feedback loop. So like, what, what's your process like at Ted? Like, is it, is, are you on a team or like, what is the sort of just day to day, like feedback process when you're coming up with stuff on the fly? Yeah. So I, I am part of a team. There are roughly six of us, sometimes more, sometimes slightly less. Um, we're a very scrappy, mighty team. And we do just constantly go to each other and say, like, can you look at this? Can you give me a second? How should I reply to this? I'm constantly slacking my manager. She is so patient being like, Hey, I want to do a weird meme in response to this. Is that okay? Or like, Hey, you should know that we're getting this heat for this kind of situation. Or like, Hey, this comment thread has spiraled out of control because everyone is sensitive about this issue. Like, can you help me figure out how to reply to this. So we definitely have those, like we try to be social is difficult because you have to act so quickly, but at the same time you have to get it right the first time because there's no, there's no taking it back once it's out there. The internet is forever. So you have to be agile and you have to be smart. Um, and those two things are not always the same. So we try to just very, we, we have a system of like, I will go interrupt a meeting if I have to and be like, Hey, right now I need you for five minutes. This thing is happening to one of my coworkers to try to get that fast response and, and get that judgment. And sometimes we even make mistakes with that process. I think in general, we have a pretty good compass of like, this is, uh, this is a thing we're going to stay away from, or let's pay attention to this, or, um, can you track this for me and see what happens? But it's, it's difficult, especially since Ted is a massive, massive brand. Like, uh, like we have so many TEDx events around the world. We have so many different conferences. We have thousands of speakers. Um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of ways in which people can interact with Ted, but that also means there are a lot of ways in which people can have, um, confusion with, with the brand or what we stand for or what we're doing. And so it's, our team is kind of the front line of figuring out how people are talking about us and thinking about us and, um, what conversations are happening that we can help clarify or where are moments where we can have some fun and, and, um, jump in with a GIF or yep. push our voice a little bit to, to help people get into a topic they don't really understand. So it's, there's definitely a, uh, a feedback or not a feedback. There's a, um, there's a constant, it's like a writer's room environment of bouncing ideas around yeah. and, and getting those gut checks. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Like that's so important for people. I think, especially mm-hmm. for smaller companies. Like when I think about like, like our agency is really small. Like I said, it's just me. And then a couple other mm-hmm. people that we have an intern and just some other creatives that we all bounce ideas off each other when it comes to social. And I think for a lot of smaller companies, when it's just one person who's running the, the ship, it, oftentimes you do get you get tunnel vision because you, you're only one perspective you, do, yeah. you know it's like even if you are so smart or open or understanding of internet culture no one's perfect exactly like you're, you're gonna have blind spots no matter how long you've been doing it or how good you are at the job and it's it's so important to have a good team of people to keep you keep you in check when it comes to doing these yeah. uh these make or break decisions in like a split second of a tweet that can completely ruin the day the day of the company or the week or the month or whatever so absolutely and i think it's having that team that can help you separate the same way journalists do that can help you separate your own sense of humor or your own ideology like i very often will get no's from my boss because i'll say like i want to make this joke or i want to include this community in this post because i have i know like the feminist community so well and my boss will say like very patiently and kindly be like well think about our main audience like 
what does our main audience know about this issue? Or like who, what is their familiarity with this? Like you have, there's still moments where I, I've been working at Ted for four years and I still need to remind myself, like I, I cannot create posts that only I would enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I might love this tweet, but that doesn't mean it'll succeed. And that doesn't mean that it's true to the brand or to our audience. And, um, having that, having that group and, and constantly reminding yourself that that's true is, is really useful. Yeah, and you're an interesting case with all this because there's public accessibility to the fact that you, yeah. that you are, yeah, you are who you are and you do work for Ted as a social media manager. So, like, what's that been like internally? Like, has that caused any issues or has that caused specific groups to come after you through the Ted account? Or, like, what Like, what are some of, the, like, the convolutions <laughs> that, like, you know what I mean? Because, like, you're... Yes. Like, I've, I've had that happen. I'm on such a smaller scale than you, like, with the company that I manage. And I've never had a moment where I've personally gone viral. Like, I had... The brand went viral while I was working on it. But, like, even though my name was attached to some of the articles, like, oh, so-and-so is a social media manager, the high, like the highlight point was never on me to the point that it propped me up as an individual. Like, I was always behind the brand. So, like, within the past few months, I've started to be more public, like, on Twitter specifically about, like, this is who I am. I run this account. Like, I've been trying to own it a little bit more because before I was trying to hide it. Cause I wasn't sure like if that was something that I even wanted. And then yeah. once an article, once one article gets published, it's like, okay, well now the information is out there. So you can either own it or just keep hiding behind a rock. Cause all, all of my, I don't have any like anonymous accounts anywhere. Like my Twitter is just my name, just like yours is. So like, what, what has that been like, you know, since you've been a public figure on social for so many years uh, with working at the company? Yeah, I, I'm very lucky, again, that I work at TED and that there is this allowance for people to be their own full humans outside of the office. I think I'm probably the one of the most public staffers at TED in terms of having my own work and my own soapbox yeah. <laughs> and my own causes. I'm an extreme case. And that wasn't true when Ted hired me. I mean, I started with Ted four years ago. So I, I think that I have, I don't know if they were expecting that, but they've certainly been very chill about it since then. But I do think about it a lot. And I always wince when like a tweet that I fired off about some political issue is then embedded in an article and the journalist will be like, Ella Dawson, social media editor at TED Talks, says X, Y, Z. Because I'm like, <laughs> my job does not have anything to do with my exactly. view on this. And like, this is not reflecting Ted. This is reflecting me as an individual. So there are moments like that where I'm like, oh God, like, don't do that. Like, that's, that's not ideal. Um, and it, and so that's annoying. And I also, um, because I run Ted's Twitter account, I am the person who reads our, our mentions most of the time. And I'm not the only person, but it's usually just me. And every once in a while, I'll piss off like the alt-right or 4chan or Reddit because I talk about some feminist issue. And then all those people will be like, this is an unacceptable thing for the editor of at TED Talks to say, like, Ted, how do you Jeez. feel about this? And I'm like, I'm the only person reading this yeah. <laughs> um, you're trying to get me fired by telling me to fire myself yeah this isn't the ceo of ted reading this like this is no. the social media manager <laughs> no and thankfully none of those things have gathered enough steam where 
it would actually be something that would freak out my coworkers. Um, but it has been interesting. And I have like, I have had instances where people have contacted my coworkers. Um, I was outed as bisexual at work because somebody emailed all of the directors and myself mocking my sexual identity. And I'm just really lucky that everyone, all the directors who were included and the directors at Ted, their reaction was not like, Oh, somebody's interacting with the brand in a negative way. It was, Oh my God, I hope Ella's okay. Wow. Um, that's awesome. And yeah, I've been really supported, um, by, by everyone at Ted who, who recognizes that I'm doing something difficult. And even if they don't necessarily agree with everything that I'm fighting for, respect me enough as a human and as a colleague to, who, to want me to be safe at the end of the day. But I am very careful about, um, what I say when I am speaking as Ted, whether it's, on this podcast now, or like if, if I'm ever like, I am not, I am not a PR spokesperson for the company by any means, but if, if you work anywhere and your, your employers associated with who you are, you have to be conscious of what you're saying. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. I'm surprised. Honestly, sometimes I'm surprised that it hasn't been more of an issue. Knock on wood. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride. And I think like Ted's, Ted's mission is about spreading ideas and starting conversations. And I, I'm starting conversations and maybe, and I'm not doing them at Ted, but I, I think that at the end of the day, my ideology or Ted's ideology is not, it's not for censorship or for closing down avenues of conversation. So, um, that is my loop-de-loop way of saying that I love my job and that uh, I hope that I never step in it. <laughs> well, sound, yeah, that's, that sounds amazing. Like, that's such a valuable trait for a company to have internally to treat their employees in that way of just respecting their personal identities. Because it really does. It just gets mixed up so much nowadays. Like, I feel like it is slowly becoming destigmatized to the point where you had someone like Amy Brown who with the whole Wendy's situation when they went viral, like she became a public figure after yeah, she that. Really did. Yeah, and like now obviously now she's publicly said that she works she's now the postmates social media manager. So I think people like her and like yourself, like there's a lot of people who the past few years have sort of helped, I guess, make this feel normal to online culture. Like it's not like a gotcha thing, like like someone finds out who the person running the TED account is. And it's like, oh, we got you now. Like, we we see that you're standing for some, you know, ex-political position. Now we yeah. can bring you down. Like, I feel like that sort of whatever you want to call it, that that um, that air to the whole topic is sort of dissipated, uh, at least it feels like to me. Uh, like, I, I think that's just going to be hopefully more so in the next few years as, like, the lines continue to blur between brands and the people running those brands and, and who these individuals are and, like, what, like, the fact, like you said, like, when you come out with an opinion, like, that is your opinion. It's not in any way related to your job. It's not like you're not, you're not a PR spokesperson for your job outside of it. Like, these are just your opinions as an individual. Yeah, and, as an individual, yeah. Yeah, and I think, okay, so... So we, I don't want to go this whole talk without touching on this because I know you had brought it up before when we were talking on Twitter before the podcast. And this sort of t- 
ties into this a little bit. Anyway. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, it does. So, like, let's jump into, because this podcast will come out on Monday, and today is Saturday. So, mm-hmm. this whole thing just happened this past week with the uh, Rosie Blair Twitter plain threat. Bay. Yeah, plain <laughs> Bay. <laughs> so, can you just give, a, uh, give, like, an overview of what happened and sort of, like, your take on, like, what's the deal with this entire situation? Yeah. This ties so perfectly into what we were talking about, because I think that for people who work in social, there's this increased awareness that like the people who run these brand accounts are people and they have their own views. But at the same time, like we're seeing this rise of people getting fired because they did this crazy thing or like yep. this movement to fire people for X, Y, Z and to find out who they really are. And it's there's no division anymore between public and private citizens. Like if you fuck up in public, excuse my language, or if you do something really cute in public, it is fair game for yep. anyone. So this lady, Rosie Blair, clearly not a fan of the shit of the stuff she. Oh my god, I need to stop swearing. <laughs> You're fine. Just, you don't need to excuse okay. yourself. You can say whatever you want on this podcast. <laughs> this is HBO. Okay, um, but yeah. So Rosie Blair was on a flight and she traded seats with somebody so that she could sit next to her partner. And she wound up as a result putting these two people to sit together in front of her, who were, I guess, both physical trainers or athletes. And Rosie and her partner. I think they were using Instagram stories, but they basically live Instagrammed and live tweeted this entire interaction between these two strangers sitting in front of them and made up this story that they were falling in love, that they were so compatible. They were eavesdropping on their entire conversation. They were taking photos of their elbows touching on the the armrest and like Twitter fell in love with this. They thought it was so romantic. There's this huge appetite right now for escapism and for, for hope and for romance. And like people totally got into it because it was so it seems so cute. And like, I watched it and immediately I was like, this is a problem because a, you, you have no idea what these two people are really thinking, how they really feel. We have no insight to what's going on. We're receiving this all through the filter of Rosie. Who's posting, who's mapping her own story onto these two strangers. They are not consenting to being part of this. They have no idea that this interaction that they're having, whether it's flirting or not, is being broadcast to the entire internet. They have not chosen to be part of this. To quote Taylor Swift badly, I did not like I would like to be removed from this narrative. Like <laughs> I did not I did not sign up for this. And you and Rosie, meanwhile, is gaining thousands of Twitter followers from this, is really benefiting from this story that she's telling as it goes viral. Yeah, how and, big was the thread, just to, for people to scope it? It was like hundreds of thousands of likes, wasn't it? Yeah, it was massive. It, was it went huge. crazy viral. And then in the days that followed, it was picked up by Good Morning America, by BuzzFeed, by all these publications. So it goes like the full viral. There's a hashtag, everything. Very quickly, the the man was identified in this couple, and he kind of loved it. You know, he seems like somebody who enjoys being in the public sphere, like he's an athlete. He saw it. I don't think he saw it as an opportunity to build his brand. But like he recognized that, oh, I've gained a bunch of followers. He starts writing about or tweeting about it. He goes on the morning shows. He's having a great time. Everybody's so excited that he's been identified. And so people start to rush to identify the woman. And the woman starts receiving a whole bunch of harassment, has her identity leaked, has her Instagram leaked. She starts getting a lot of slut shaming because Rosie made some joke about how they both went to the bathroom at the same time and like, oh, did they have sex? Did they join the Mile High Club? So insane. The story that she's telling. And she, of course, probably didn't think about like, oh, I'm projecting sexual activity onto these two strangers. That might not pan out too well for them. Like, I don't think Rosie did any of this maliciously, but it was incredibly irresponsible 
because you're opening up these two people to be criticized by the entire internet. And that's exactly what happened. So the woman involved has deleted her social media, has um, been really reluctant to come out because again, she never asked for any of this. She was just on a plane. And I think that it was interesting when the thread first started, I shared it on Slack with the rest of my team and my team members were like, Oh, this is so cute. This is so fun. And I didn't want to be like party pooper. I think this is bad. But like I, as someone who thinks so much about the public and private divide, because I've had my own privacy violated and I've become this public figure by accident, I immediately was like, oh, this is going to end poorly because I know how the internet works. The internet is not a great place. Like you create someone and then you knock them down. And both of those things are fun for the audience. Both of those things kind of light up our, our, um, parts of our brain that love that kind of drama. So I, I was really freaked out watching this happen. And I think like we don't talk enough about the complete erosion of privacy in public. We don't talk enough about how our actions impact other people on the internet to begin with. That's always been an issue. The media wants everything to be considered public because then they can create content and make ad revenue and all kinds of stuff. And the technology companies don't want there to be a concept of what's public and private, because if everything is public, that's more data that they can sell. Anil Dash does a really good job talking about this. And he wrote a Medium article, What is Public? I think back in 2014 about a lot of these issues. And I've only seen it get worse. And like Plain Bay, like when I'm on a plane, I do not want to talk to anybody. I look like garbage. I want to be in my (laughs) private space. I get sick on planes. I barf up so much lung on planes all the time. And the idea of somebody sitting behind me, live tweeting what I'm reading or who I'm talking to or whatever else is appalling to me. And especially if I'm just some random person, if you're not a politician, if you're not somebody whose behavior reflects on your character, like if Justin Trudeau were flirting with some person sitting next to him on a flight, like he's Justin Trudeau, those things have consequences. But if you're some random fitness instructor from Texas, like why is it anybody's business? So that is my rant, <laughs> but like, leave people alone. Just leave them alone. It's that, not your business. That was like the perfect analysis of this entire <laughs> situation. <laughs> it's like, it's the most, I think the most bizarre thing to me about this. And I, again, this is my personal bias because I'm so close to working in social media is that it feels like some, this situation to me wouldn't have surprised me going viral maybe three years ago, but it feels mm-hmm. like. At this point, how are the how is the vast majority of internet users still so un- uneducated to the point where they all think this is okay? I think that that's the freaky thing to me. It's not necessarily yeah. that like okay, people might have different opinions on like the pub- like the privacy issue. They're like, what's public, what's private? Because that line is so blurred. It's difficult. But, yeah, it's really hard to know wh- where do we draw that line. I think each individual, like you said, like with this guy, I think his name was Ewan or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he enjoyed it, whereas the this woman who I don't even know who what her name was, but she had to she delete. She was horrified. Yeah, yeah, she had to delete her social media. Like that's such like a an obvious, a glaringly obvious um a way to measure. The, dip, the way different people perceive these situations. And it seems like what it's just so bizarre to me, like that, like mil, not hundreds of thousands, millions of people read this at this point and they followed this story and the vast majority of them loved it and they didn't see anything wrong with it. You know what I mean? Like that, that to me is the most odd portion of this entire story. Yeah. It's like that the, the general social attitude, these are people who have been on the internet for years now. Like people, 
I, I guess I assumed that people had more of like a a sensitivity because like stuff like this has happened in the past where people get outed and it becomes this very sensitive, touchy issue where people like take stances and all that. But with this, it seemed like there was no divisive two, like two sides to it. It seemed like it was just one side. Like, yeah, it seems we're like very really... much in the minority here. Yeah, we're like, very much in the minority. Like here. I, I just I googled this uh, earlier today just to like see like what people are talking about now. And I only found one article that came up on my Google searches that was speaking critically about it, and it was just it compiled I think three or four popular mm-hmm. tweets of, of people criticizing I guess like the the popularity of all this, and that was pretty much it. It wasn't like a long. It wasn't like a think piece. It wasn't anything of substantial public opinion. Like the vast majority of opinionated pieces that have been put out on this have been in support of how cute and weird and quirky and like, oh, this is so like, like we live in such crazy times that this could happen. Like how cool. No one's really (laughs) highlighting these. Like I, I bet most people, if you pulled them right now, they wouldn't even know that. The woman had to delete yeah. her social media. Exactly. I think that's part of it is that you the consequences are not included in that original thread. So if you're if you're looking to follow the story or if you're reading about it in BuzzFeed, there are critical details being left out, which is that this woman is not happy. Yeah. <laughs> and I think and like Rosie Blair, the way that she told it was so she did such a good job of having it be this feel good story. Like she created that mood for people. I think the takes are coming. I think on Monday we'll start to see people be like, oh, that was kind of a messed up thing we all did. Yeah. I saw Taylor Lawrence, who does internet culture for The Atlantic, gave an interview where she was like, that was appalling and disturbing. Um, but I think that it, it reflects like the fact that we are losing sight of what privacy is. We live in this weird panopticon of social media where everyone feels like they're now a public figure because they're presenting their life to strangers. And I think reality TV is part of it too. Like we're used to watching strangers fall in love, but we forget that in reality TV, someone has signed up to do that. And on social media, no one is necessarily consenting and you can't verify it. And like you can, after the fact, if you've been in one of these viral moments, you can kind of reclaim it if you want to and be like, oh, yeah, that was that was me. Like Walmart yodel boy. Like right, right. he's he turned that into a gig at Coachella. He's but, got a whole brand now. Yeah. But like we don't really hear from the people who are like, well, that was bad. And especially if you're someone who made a mistake in public as opposed to did something cute in public like Justine Zacco. Um, remember her, the uh, HIV tweet lady who who tweeted something offensive when she got on a plane. And then by the time she yes, landed, she'd been great. fired in and her Africa. life was over. Yeah, yeah. Like she was somebody who had like less than a thousand Twitter followers. And yes, her comment was insensitive and racist and shitty. But like that blew up like crazy. And I think it was this like public shaming that people get so addicted to or public enjoyment that people get addicted to not realizing that this is a person they have not had a choice in this it's almost like blood sport for entertainment and it's it's really bad and scary and like i've had my own personal experience of this where like people will attack me online there will be like gawker wrote this really scathing kind of hilarious article about me before they fell about like how i would complain about harassment um and like clearly i signed up for this because i'm a public figure where like an article wow. written she about was asking the same for issue, it. yeah an article written about the same issue it was when news genius was still around and they were trying to do their web annotator a very like a different article at a different magazine called me a private figure because I like, because I'm not really a public figure in some ways. Like 
who gets to decide who's public and who's private and who's fair game? Um, and like when I first went viral with my one essay for women's health, I was a nobody on the internet and the daily mail found my Facebook profile, which didn't have very tight security savings and, uh, settings and stole a ton of photos of me from my Facebook and like cropped my dad out of a photo of us together on his birthday. Like, that's and that's so like insane. to them, they're like, well, that's public. You put that on Facebook. And I'm like, well, I wasn't prepared for the daily mail to take an interest in me that I, if you would ask me, I would have said no, but you didn't ask because there was no reason for you to. It's, it's something people really need to think about and they don't think about until it is way too late. Yeah. Like how crazy is that you don't get to decide if you're a public figure or not? The internet's deciding that for you. Cause like you mm-hmm. said, you went viral for an article and obviously your name is searchable on Google, but it's not like you've ever come out but prior to all this in a way where you were this is what you wanted like you wanted to be projecting all this like you had a small niche audience like i feel like most people have no concept for that like just day to day who maybe on their facebook they ran about politics and like they have have like a dozen or a couple dozen people who like all their stuff and comment and that's just their sort of day-to-day life where it's like oh i get to make these comments about trump or obama and they get to say whatever they want and all it would take and, – and to them, like if you asked them about a situation like this, they'd be like, well, yeah, they were asking for like blah, blah, blah. Like they're, they're putting all that out there. But had something like that happened to them over something that they've been putting out there, it's a whole other world. Like it's one of those yeah. things I think where most people, they it's really hard for them to put themselves in the shoes of someone who's gone viral because you just – you have no idea what it's like until it happens. And it's so – convoluted like for you like we, we've been talking forever now i, I could keep going forever so we can <laughs> there, there's no stopping me but uh, I, I just ran. okay good but we, we can we can like we can wind it down a little bit but uh something i was interested in before we uh close out that i wanted to get your thoughts on was just like with all this like with you going viral and having all this attention and you being an advocate to help to destigmatize STIs and herpes and all this, like the sex ed work that you've done. Like how in the course of all this happening over the past few years, like how much has your identity being wrapped up in it affected you as a person? Like, is this something that, how does it affect you, I guess, day to day now? Like, do you ever struggle internally with feeling like this thing that you've created is now it owns you? This is now the thing that you're defined as like similar. Like I mentioned before, Amy Brown with the Wendy's thing, whereas she's openly talked about uh, in articles before about how like the Wendy's situation sort of owned her at a time. Like it felt like all she'd ever be was the Wendy's girl. Now, like, do you ever like, have you struggled with that in any capacity? And like, what are sort of your thoughts moving forward now that you're sort of your years past all that? So like, what has it been like for you? Just like having that attached to who you are. In 2015 and 2016, I really struggled with those issues of who am I? Am I Ella Dawson, the brand? Am I do, will I forever be defined by writing about herpes and feminism? And like, will I always be harassed in this way? What gets to belong to me as a person? What belongs to the world? And I, it, it was very difficult. And it was also at a time where I think a lot of people are struggling with their identities because I was 23, 24 years old and the world was about to change with the election. And it was, it was incredibly hard. Um, especially when I was receiving harassment because it was about such a personal topic and experience that was already traumatic for me. Like it got really ugly. 
Um, I've always been somebody with like a low simmer of anxiety. I am a British wasp. So like I I have a lot of anxiety about the world already. And then when I became more of an internet celebrity, I began having panic attacks, um, deep, weird paranoia. I became very self-censoring with what I said online. And it was, it was quite scary. It was a scary time in my life. And it made it difficult for me to connect with other people too, because there it's, it's difficult for someone to understand, as we were saying, what it's like when somebody goes viral, but it also means that people can't really empathize with the fear that you're feeling with the, uh, struggles that you have around who you are and what you owe to the world. Um, and it was, it was a difficult time. And then there were like the more mundane, obvious things of like, how do you date when your Google result is genital herpes? And like, how do you, what does it mean at your office when your coworkers know all about this horrible breakup you've just had. Like it, it started to erode the barriers in my life when I was in that like peak phase of internet virality. And, um, I don't regret any of the choices that I've made, but I do look back at who I was even a year or two ago with so much sympathy because I was really struggling and I, I did not feel like I lived when I wasn't online. Like my time online was, was the time when I was myself and when I was doing something important. And it was, that's, that's not a very healthy dynamic. And what wound up happening was the election happened and I just didn't want to be online in the same way. And a lot of things happened in my family that are private, that, um, that were not something that I wanted to process online. Um, the people involved are private people. So it wasn't a story that was mine to tell or to tweet about as a way to process. So there were a lot of things that forced me to kind of back up from the internet. And I entered a serious relationship with someone who's very private and it kind of, those, all those changes forced me to reconfigure my relationship to the internet. What am I online for? It's to write about sex or to talk about politics, or it is for my day job at Ted, which is a completely different part of myself as well. And as a result, when I'm online, I am doing politics or writing or watching the world cup and live texting with my dad. But when I'm not online, that's when I'm interacting with my friends. That's when I'm thinking about the world. That's when I'm doing other things. And I am now someone who uses the internet very consciously and very intentionally. And I'm someone who uses each social media platform very intentionally. I am on Twitter because this is a place where I'm a public figure, or I'm on Facebook because this is a place where I'm interacting with family or friends from high school. I'm on Tumblr because this is a place where I can talk about being queer and freaking out about, um, Brooklyn nine, nine <laughs> and, <laughs> and Instagram is where I post cute photos of my relationship. And like, those are the rules. That's what I go to those platforms for. And I do not err from those principles. And that tends to help me have a more positive relationship with social media and with myself. Um, it helps me understand who I am as removed from my brand, so to speak, or from my career. And it's, it's, it was a change and it was difficult to figure out. And I think it's something that I wish more people, I wish that's a conversation more people would have with themselves because I think all of us should have a social media strategy as individuals. What am I hoping to achieve in these places? What value are they adding to my life? What here is hurting me or wasting my time? And I'm hoping that's something that more people will become aware of as people realize that like, oh, social networks, kind of, kind of a shitty place. (laughs) But that's the nutshell version. Yeah. You sound like such a social media adult. Like this Thank is, you. Like, that was that was a beautiful 
mini rant of explaining like how introspective you've become through your your personal journey through all this because like that is so important i think i mean you're amazing i think what you're doing is so cool because setting up just the idea behind that question is something i think about a lot with how personal identity entwines with social media and oftentimes i know like if you if you cut social media out of the equation entirely and you just look at your personal identity Oftentimes, like the wounds that we accumulate over our lives tend to define us in one way or another, Yeah, you know, and for some people, like they don't have the privilege, you could say, of ever coming back from that. Like some people go through such severe trauma that they can't really choose to to see necessarily how it will define them. But with someone like myself or like you, like you've really you took a an issue that happened to you personally and rather than letting the stigma overtake you and like rather like retreating into a corner you took what was happening to you and you brought it into the the public light and you took a stance and you created education and humor and you're telling your story in such an intricate open way that i think is just so valuable for not just people in your personal community because like you said i think your story obviously you've touched thousands of people's lives like in in the different communities whether that's um like the herpes uh, uh, do you refer to it as the herpes community like is it like yeah. is that like a name for it it's like there's yeah. like there's that community and there's anyone there's just the broader sti community and there's like a lot of minority groups and i'm sure you have in, been impacted by your work but then also just like the broader community of people who are on social media trying to figure out and learn more about how to navigate this weird space and i think just your story and what you've done with all this is so fascinating and i love hearing your perspectives just as you've been wading through this mess the past few years because because that's what we've all been doing it and like you said like it's it sucks that not more people are openly talking about it and i feel like that is sort of one of the major keys that can really help project a lot of these difficult topics and conversations forward is just having our experiences be more open for other people to relate to and to create solidarity around because this is just the internet's not going away and none of these topics that we just talked about are going away and we have to figure out more mediums and methods to get them in the open and out of the the closet so we don't ever become like the the demons of 4chan (laughs) exactly may we never become our worst selves on the internet (laughs) amazing quote well ella this has been a total blast and i really really appreciate that you've been overly generous with your time i wasn't even looking at the time and i just looked at it and i was like oh wow she's you're great. So thanks so much. I have for... had so much fun. This is my only plan for the day. I was like, I'm going to talk about social media and then I might go see Jurassic World by myself. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is, this has been such a blast. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much again for doing it. And yeah, I will catch you back on Twitter. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Take care. Thank you.